It's not just radio, it's Rockland World Radio. RocklandWorldRadio.com Alright, hello and welcome to New York Update. This is Jake Jacobs. I'm a New York City teacher and education activist. And we're going to be reporting back on last week where I di- we didn't have a show. Um, actually, I was attending a fundraiser for a congressional candidate down in Queens. But we are going to uh, give you an update today. We don't talk about Donald Trump very often, but today's the day, right, Richard? They are formally beginning impeachment inquiry. So we're going to go over a couple of headlines. We're going to start with uh, last Tuesday, I attended a uh, campaign kickoff for a congressional candidate by the name of Erica Vladimir, who is challenging Carolyn Maloney, who is a 30-year incumbent Democratic uh, politician. Uh, this is most of the east side of Manhattan. And then parts of Queens, which include Astoria, Williamsburg, and Greenpoint. So Erica Vladimir, I spoke about a little before. She's really interesting because she had the history with Jeff Klein, who allegedly kissed her without consent. And then she blew the whistle. And then she joined the Albany Working Group on Sexual Harassment, along with the victims of Vita Lopez and other women who have been sexually harassed up in Albany, and then they, they were silenced. The laws and new legislation did pass in the last session, so that was a win. And Erica Vladimir is also an attorney who is experienced in legislation and case law and policy and actually specialized in issues relating to uh, Title I funding for New York City, where she wrote reports. So interesting candidate against Carolyn Maloney. Carolyn Maloney is kind of non-controversial, 30-year Democrat, just like a good, like, go-along-to-get-along Democrat. You don't hear very much negative about her so much as you hear about Elliot Engel and some of the other corporate Dems or moderate Dems, centrist Dems. But Erica Vladimir has a long time to make her case. I'm backing her, and I hope the New York Bats are backing her, too, because she is so strong on education that... When you look at her uh, policy flyer and all of her bullet points, the first thing she listed was that she wants to get rid of the standardized testing. So this is definitely a woman after my own heart. She's great uh, against charter schools, privatization. She sees what we see, you know, the interference by billionaires, the campaign money, just all of it. Interesting stuff at the kickoff when she made her little speech. We found out, I had no idea, that Carolyn Maloney's actual largest campaign donor is BlackRock. BlackRock, yes, that that famous Wall Street firm. So, you know, they're all up in, you know, fossil fuel investment and corporate high finance stuff, banking, and, you know, you could go on and on about them. They're a, uh, a big Wall Street firm. So that happened last Tuesday. Then we get to Friday. And Friday, here in New York City and all over the world, <laughs> was the biggest climate march in history. And I went down after school uh, to hear Greta Thunberg speak, the Swedish 16-year-old girl who has been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. Actually, she just blew me away. Now, her speech was interrupted because a whole bunch of people were, like, passing out and fainting. It was pretty hot. It was, like, 89 degrees. But the crowds were enormous. I never saw so many people at Battery Park, and I've been to a couple of rallies there. She announced on the loudspeaker that there was 250,000 attendees attending the climate march because it started all the way up on Foley Square, and then it went, I think, past the cathedral and the downtown, and they winded their way. 250,000. I remember going to the climate march, uh, I want to say two years ago. 
and that started up on Central Park West. And I remember the numbers being enormous. They said that there was over 100,000 people there and that that rivaled the protests, crowd sizes that haven't been seen since the Vietnam era. And that was supposed to be big. Well, this more than doubled it. And that's just New York City. I haven't seen the totals because she said that they were still counting, but uh, they had already counted 4 million worldwide including gigantic crowds in Chicago and Philly and Dublin, Ireland and London and Australia. 20,000 here, 50,000 there. I mean, it was just amazing. And when this girl spoke, now there was a lot of different speakers. You know, it was all about the climate. It was all about we're warming the planet. We have to stop our ways. We have to change our, our energy economy. But when Greta spoke... It was chilling because here is a 16-year-old girl who just sees as clear as day what's happening in our world. If you haven't heard her story, she's the kid that started taking off every Friday from school. She was playing hooky and she would go down to the Swedish parliament and she just planted herself there with a sign. And she was all alone and then, you know, it kind of caught on and snowballed and snowballed. Now, she gave this speech in front of in Battery Park. There were just people everywhere. I don't know how much it holds. People coming and going, coming and going. So crowd size is one thing. But then there was her speech, and her speech was just chilling. It was like, we are the next generation, and you guys are screwing up the planet, and people are dying right now. There is species collapse. There is entire ecosystem collapse. The coral reef, the polar ice, the sea levels, the warming temperatures. Everybody can see what's going on. We just had a category of storm in the Bahamas that they don't even have a number for because it was higher than category five. They're thinking about making a new category. And, you know, and the crowd was all behind her. And, you know, everyone's looking around thinking, yeah, like this is important. This is urgent. It's an emergency. It's a crisis. What are we doing about this? And, you know, all the grownups were looking around like, yeah, we kind of are in charge here. It's on our watch. And, you know, we need out of the mouths of babes to tell us what's always been in front of our eyes. But what is stopping us from changing the climate? I mean, completely. I mean, dead. Like, stop selling gasoline and heating oil and all that. Like, immediate transition, immediate plan. What is stopping us? Well, for one thing, Donald Trump, (laughs) the Republican Party, the Republicans in New York, the Republicans in Pennsylvania, you know, the frackers, the big oil companies, you got the Koch brothers, you have ExxonMobil, you got BP, fossil fuel industry. These guys have been making a fortune. They have their entire income and uh, infrastructure built. They have refineries, you know, they have trains, they have planes, they have boats and tankers, they have drilling sites, wells all over the country. And so they don't want to stop the gravy train from running. And they're getting rich right now, so why should they stop? Well, the reason is, is because the planet is warming uncontrollably and we have to get off fossil fuels. So they got to start passing laws and then they got to start outlawing this. And that's just the way it has to be. I'm 100% behind this. Greta Thunberg is right. You know, it, it took a kid to smack us into reality. I mean, but I've been saying all this stuff, you know, all along. It's just that, you know, we come up against the wall. We come up against a political wall and we come up against the wall of apathy and laziness. And it's just ourselves. It's just we are the problem, right? We are not doing more. We're not seeing this for what it is. We're not seeing, you know, the refugees, the people that can't plant crops all over South and Central America, the people, you know, that are getting flooded out, 
uh, there was there was a speaker there from Bangladesh who said that that her city is underwater more than half the time and that she's gotten used to spending life underwater, like literally parts of her body underwater. We've seen uh, uh, record floods in Miami Beach. We've seen uh, down in the Jersey Shore. We've seen it over here in uh, Long Island. I mean, everywhere you go. So, you know, it's the severity of storms. And it's, you know, just, you know, the disappearing islands. You know, they're just, the beaches are eroding. The boardwalks are getting swept away. It's all happening. So can't say enough about Greta Thunberg. And after she made her speech last Friday, she made a speech, I believe it was just yesterday. And so that was Monday. And she made an even better speech. They said it only took her five minutes to bring the house down. And I heard it on the radio and it was a bone-chilling speech, you know. She got all, like, you know, emotional, and she said, how dare you? You know, because, you know, for, for all this time, the politicians have been uh, appearing with her and taking selfies and shaking her hands and saying that they admire her passion and all that, but not doing anything. And, you know, she threw the Danish government under the bus, the American government, you know, she said every government, she said there wasn't a single government doing the right thing. Maybe if she could refer to like Iceland or something like that, you know, somebody that's gone 100% renewable, but I'm sure even they're not doing enough. You know, we need to get off meat. That's another thing. I've been getting off meat, especially red meat. I mean, my wife cooked chicken like almost every night. I don't know why we eat so much chicken, but I don't eat red meat very often. You know, we might have like burgers or ribs or something you know, maybe just once or twice a month now. And, uh, you know, I understand, you know, I love olives and eggplant and all these alternatives. I don't like mushrooms. But there's a lot of meat alternatives out there that people should be uh, checking out. It really is intensive. If you think about it, you know, a cow or a pig or a lamb or something, they eat hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of meals, you know, of grain and, and vegetables and everything before they're slaughtered to give you one meal. Why don't you just eat the grains instead? Why don't you just have a meal of corn or something? It doesn't make sense. It just takes so much energy to put like a steak dinner in front of an American. And we are the hogs of the planet. We are the most wasteful country on the planet. And we don't care. We are apathetic and we love the taste of meat. I used to eat meat like almost every day when I was younger. You know, it's a habit that we all got into. So there's that. Next, the big Trump saga, which took a turn today. Everybody's freaking out that finally Nancy Pelosi is getting on board. Now, I know Nancy Pelosi has no love for Trump. She was not protecting him. She was waiting this thing out. And, you know, I have a couple of opinions. Maybe it was timing. She wanted to drag it out as long as possible so that she could actually launch this whole thing as close as possible to the 2020 election. You know, as it turns out, it's going to be getting kicked off right before the 2019 election. And, you know, maybe she wanted to space it out better. Or maybe she wanted to build the case because, you know, there was new information coming out every day and they're getting closer and closer with these probes. You know, they had Corey Lewandowski under oath hearings last week. Hope Hicks is next. We have the Roger Stone trial that's kicking off in just over a month from now. You know, it's going to be drip drip and these things are going to happen. So what finally broke the barrier here for Pelosi? Yesterday, a bunch of purple state House Democrats, first year incumbents, right? They ju they were just elected, and all of them have military service, right? Iraq veterans, veterans of uh, all the different armed forces, and they all said, "Don't worry about us. 
don't protect us, don't worry about our re-election, impeach right now. And they all sign this letter. And so if Nancy Pelosi is hearing from these battleground Dems that they're 100% behind impeachment now, then it's time to do it. And what set them off and what set everybody off most recently is if you're listening to this in the future or for some reason you don't know, uh, Donald Trump admitted to making a telephone conversation with the Ukrainian president a couple months ago in which he was dangling the prospect of like something like $250 million in aid, in military aid, in exchange for, number one, dirt on Joe Biden regarding his son Hunter Biden and all of these Ukrainian high finance deals that he was able to make. You know, for some reason, Joe Biden's son was put in charge of like a billion dollars in financial assets with absolutely no experience in the space. Although there's nothing illegal about that, apparently Trump and everybody else believes that it was done to curry favor with Joe Biden because he was the vice president at the time. Trump wants the Ukrainian government to turn over documents you know, that show this, that show the corruption, that show, you know, that Biden was corrupt or Biden's son was corrupt. I don't know what the government has on this. It sounds like this is all private industry. These are all private firms, private energy companies, finance companies. So I'm not sure what the Ukrainian government even could give Trump. But that's not all. The other thing that Trump asked for on this call, according to the reports, he also asked for intel that would help the defense of Paul Manafort, okay? Paul Manafort has already been convicted and is already serving his sentence because he was getting illegal money from Ukrainian oligarchs. He was, they said it was in the form of loans, but he totally wasn't declaring any of this. And so that is all felonies, tax evasion. And, you know, he tried to declare retroactively that he was lobbying for the Ukrainian party. What was it called? The Party of Regions. And so he was caught, he was convicted, and he went down. The documents that were used as evidence came from Ukraine, came from somebody in Ukraine that turned them over. And Donald Trump was trying to reopen that case, like relitigate that whole thing, like find out who leaked it, why they leaked it. You know, maybe they want to try to say it was just a political hit job. But this is what Trump was doing. And Trump not only admitted all this, he said he's going to release the transcript of the call like tomorrow or any day now because he's contending there's nothing wrong with it, that he was trying to guarantee that Ukraine had no corruption before he gives them all this money because the president, uh, Zelensky or something, that he was speaking to was literally just elected and just put into office. So Trump is going to try to convince us now that he cares about corruption, right? I mean, the guy won't turn over his taxes. The guy won't testify in his own defense on, like, major corruption trials. Of course, this is all way, 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 way late. To me, the impeachment should have been announced like a couple days after the Mueller report came out. The Mueller report shows slam-dunk evidence of obstruction of justice, and it shows a lot of circumstantial evidence suggesting other crimes, but Mueller was not able to ascertain that they were crimes for sure because, number one, Trump wouldn't testify, other witnesses wouldn't testify, they all stonewalled, they all circled the wagons, and then finally... Attorney General Barr was confirmed, and then just within like a month or or maybe a couple of weeks or a month, he ended the Mueller investigation. He told them, that's it, wrap it up, you got like a week, you got two weeks, and Mueller just had to say, okay, 
Well, we have him on obstruction. We're just going to release the report. And so you have all of this other stuff. You know, when it comes to collusion with the Russian government, we know for sure that Trump found out that the Russians were approaching his campaign and his son, and he did not go to the authorities. Trump has admitted all this. Instead of going to the authorities, Trump lied and released a statement that was dictated when Hope Hicks was in the room, saying that they were just talking about adoptions. In other words, he lied to cover up the fact that Russia was trying to penetrate his campaign. And that might not be conspiracy. It might not be cooperation. He was trying to help the Russians hide the facts from the authorities. And then we know Flynn was indicted for lying, and he was he's about to be uh, sentenced. He was already convicted. We know Manafort we spoke of. We know about Cohen. Now with Cohen, Cohen is, is in jail serving his sentence, and Trump, there's slam dunk evidence. They have a check that Trump signed that was reimbursement for Cohen uh, for a payment that he made to Stormy Daniels, which was an illegal campaign contribution because it happened on the eve of the election in order to silence her so that evangelical voters or women voters or whoever would not have to hear this scandal that Stormy Daniels had slept with the president when his son was in the hospital being born. Michael Cohen admitted everything, and his unindicted co-conspirator, which means a sitting president that you can't indict, was individual one, Donald Trump, and Donald Trump lied about knowing about it, so that's impeachable. And then he turned out he did know about it, and now he's trying to say that it's not a campaign contribution, when clearly it was, because if Stormy Daniels would have went public on ABC News 2020, literally the week or two before the election, that's a campaign's expense, right? What else? Cohen also revealed that, and he gave receipts, and he gave canceled checks, that, and he gave uh, financial documents to Congress showing that Trump lied to banks. So this is bank fraud. This is loan fraud. He was applying for loans uh, to buy the Buffalo Bills, and he misstated the value of a property he has somewhere in Westchester. He said it was worth $90 million when it's really only worth $11 million. That, folks, is a felony. You cannot do that. Anybody else can be rounded up and convicted or at least forced to pay a fine if there's a, if there's a non-prosecution settlement or go to court and defend themselves. Is this your signature, sir? So there's that. You know, what else? We have the emoluments clause. Ever since day one, when Trump was first inaugurated and became the president, he refused to shut down his hotels. He refused to close his golf courses. He refused to divest. He refused to place them in a blind trust, as other presidents have done, and vice presidents. Instead, he said he was going to be the first president in history to put the businesses under the uh, watchful eye of his sons. And at the same time, he was making his sons advisors to the administration and to the campaign. Total conflict of interest. It takes so long to wind its way through the courts. They just got a decision uh, a week, two weeks ago, when I was when I was on the air last, that this case can go forward, and so you have the Washington D.C. case with the hotel and all of the officials, the Russians and the uh, Ukrainians and Pakistanis and uh, Turks and all of these big like foreign diplomats are all staying there. They're all renting out entire floors for a weeks and weeks at a time. They're not even showing up. You know, there's people, there's reporters in the lobby, you know, monitoring who's going in there. And it's just a way to funnel money to Trump. Besides that, you got his country club, right? It was a $100,000 membership. As soon as he became president, it became $200,000 members. And you saw 
Chinese nationals trying to infiltrate it, walking around with jump drives, trying to stick their jump drives into computers, and, and they were caught, and, and they're being convicted, right? Total security breach, you know, besides the fact that Trump just talks on a cell phone. So, folks, we, ha- we are at the point of impeachment. Everybody should be in contact with your elected officials. You know, Congress is going to, you know, really need to know that they're doing the right thing. Here in New York, I'm not telling anybody anything. Of course, everybody hates Trump. You know, we have you know mostly Democratic delegation. Uh, we have two Democratic senators. They would both vote to convict if the House. The House is only supposed to determine whether or not uh, high crimes or misdemeanors were committed. The Senate is supposed to have the actual trial. All the House is supposed to do is tee this up, right, and do the investigation and you know, come up with the evidence, come up with the evidence on both sides, right? The Republicans are going to defend Trump in the hearings and the Democrats are going to uh, prosecute the case. And then it goes to the Senate. Now, we already know Mitch McConnell's in charge of the Senate and it's going to go absolutely nowhere. But, and this is important, for the 2020 elections, we need to get all of these senators, and there are a lot of Republican senators up for re-election in 2020, we need to get them on the record and we need to make them make full-throated defenses of Trump, even though all the evidence is plain to see, right? Anybody can see that the emoluments clause only says one thing. You're not allowed to own any business that takes in money from foreign officials. And Trump clearly owns multiple business and has been taking in millions of dollars from foreign officials. So that is clear as day that that is a breach of the U.S. Constitution. The problem is the Constitution doesn't say what happens next. What is the penalty or who is the enforcement mechanism? And so Trump is the first president in history to push that envelope. And so we are going to see this work its way out. And it might go to the Supreme Court. It might go to lower courts. It might go to the House. You know, everyone's going to have their chance to weigh in. You have the Emoluments Clause. You have Stormy Daniels. You have the Russia. Oh, and then the last thing, almost forgot, is the Moscow Tower. And again, this involves Michael Cohen. Michael Cohen is in jail right now for lying to Congress because he said that Donald Trump was not aware that he was negotiating a Moscow Tower. When he was fully aware, Trump was fully aware, and uh, Cohen said that he briefed him periodically about the Moscow Tower, that he knew it was underway, and that Trump was lying to his own supporters and his own voters when he said that he has no... Russian deals, no prospective deals, no proposals, nothing to do with the Russians. He was saying that all the way in the summertime to try to make that uh, lie sound true. Michael Cohen was told by Trump's uh, attorney team, the joint prosecution agreement team, to lie. And they wanted them to say that, uh, you know, that the negotiations were broken off in January of 2016, I believe 2016, when in fact they were ongoing. They were going on through the summer. So that's the other thing. Trump lied about the Moscow Tower. It's not illegal to to say a lie on a campaign appearance, but it that is an impeachable offense, right? High crimes and misdemeanors is all in the eye of the beholder in the House. And then it's in the eye of the beholder in the Senate whether or not they're going to actually convict. That was our little uh, Trump catch-up and, um, you know, a little time capsule. Now we're going to education headlines. And what is burning up the Twitter airwaves but 
the yeshiva issue. Another yeshiva parent has spoken out. He did not identify himself, but he did identify his school. He has a dad at the private yeshiva in the Monroe Woodbury district, which is right north of here in Rockland County. That's the actually the Curious Joel area and the, the new town that, that was renamed Palm Tree. So there's a yeshiva in Palm Tree, and this dad is alleging that his 11-year-old son, who has been attending the school for years, does not know the basic alphabet, can barely do math such as addition or subtraction, and has absolutely no educational skills after years and years at this place. So he went public, and that became a big deal, and that was in a News 12, up in Hudson Valley News 12, and uh, we tweeted out about it. We wrote, Yeshiva Parent Speaks Up, Dad of the Private Yeshiva Share Torah, I don't know if I said that right, in the Moreau Woodbury District says his 11-year-old son has never been taught the basics, including the alphabet. So in response to this, actually, um, Pearls, P-E-A-R-L-S, which is the the lobby representing these yeshivas and uh you know, they have been on a PR assault, and they have put out these uh, glossy brochures or mailers saying that, they, that they're the ones that are defending these yeshivas. And it was translated from Hebrew and put online, but uh, a woman who speaks Hebrew, I don't, and we're trusting her, uh, she put online the translation saying that uh, Pearls uh, supports uh, not only the yeshivas that teach a few hours of English per day, but also those yeshivas who teach no English. Now, that was pretty stupid of them to say because what they're doing there is actually admitting that they are breaking the law, that they're out of compliance. We know that they feel that the law shouldn't exist and they they should have the freedom to do whatever they want, but in fact, the law does exist. So that could be used against them, and we are seeing these issues come to a head. Another thing that's raging online, I was in a Facebook opt-out group, Long Island opt-out group, and the parents of the Catholic schools are really incensed because the new regulation would create new oversight by the education department on all non-public schools. And that means, yes, the Catholic schools that are doing nothing wrong, all the private schools, all the religious schools, even the ones that do teach the alphabet, and they do teach basic math and science, and you know they even do a better-than-average job, a lot of these schools. Yes, so right now they're facing new regulations where there will be a walkthrough every three years, and they would also have to uh, provide documentation of the curriculum that they're using and other things. Of course, all of these private schools and non-public schools are against this. They're like, why should we have to do something when we didn't do anything wrong? And so the answer to that, if you are a private school parent or a religious school parent and your kid goes to a school that does offer academics, is you have to throw these yeshivas under the bus, these particular yeshivas who are not following the law and are depriving kids of an education. Otherwise, this is going to be a fight that's going to affect way, way more than them, and it's going to affect people that have absolutely nothing to do with the issue because they're doing absolutely nothing wrong, and you're getting dragged into it. And in my opinion, this is what the governor wants. This is what the mayor of New York City wants, you know, because they are allies. This is a a large, concentrated voting bloc, very powerful, 
And they can do a lot for politicians, you know, for or against you. You know, maybe it's fear-based or maybe it is actual corruption. Maybe they're taking money from Agudef Israel, the lobby. But in any case, what the, the current proposal is, the current solution is, instead of making the yeshivas comply with the law and teach the kids English and teach them math, science, health, history, civics, instead they're proposing a new rule that's going to affect every private school. And it's, it's set up to fail, right? Everybody knows that the private schools that are not involved are going to get pissed off. They're going to oppose this. They're going to fight this, and they're probably going to win. I would think they're going to win, although I spoke to Naftali Moster. They're going, they're going ahead, and they're going to be refiling the lawsuit after they uh, overcome the technical deficiencies, and they feel like it's their best shot. But I feel that they're just, they're just you know, creating this. They're just wide, widening the mess. They're just widening the pain and the mess, and they feel like if it fails, then they're going to go back to the drawing board. So it's basically all a giant stall tactic. And so if you're following along, uh, you know, go online and, uh, you know, make it clear that you believe that, you know, all children in yeshiva should have a basic education, especially when they're taking taxpayer money for transportation, for textbooks, for Internet access, for special education, for lunches, for busing, for so many you know, ways that they take taxpayer money. All right. Next story is not a New York story. This is a Pennsylvania story. And it's a pretty big story. Uh, the Pennsylvania House Speaker. So this is the Pennsylvania House of Representatives, I think they call it. Uh, his name is Mike Terzai. And guess what? He takes money from pro-charter groups and pro-fracking uh, donors. Yet he accuses teachers of being a special interest group. That's a quote. That quote doesn't care about kids. This guy is, you know, he's making the case for charter schools and vouchers claiming that the public schools are a monopoly. Well, yeah, the public schools should be a monopoly. You should have a great public school in every corner so that people can go to the closest school possible and save carbon. But if you have a, a, a minute and you have the inclination, please go online and give like $2 to Emily Spokov, S-P-O-K-O-V, who is Mike Terzai's opponent running against him in the Pennsylvania House Speaker race. Um, this guy's obviously a jerk because he's taking money from special interests. He's the one that's uh, taking money from the fracking group and the fossil fuel companies. And he's trying to say that te the teachers is a special interest group because they're trying to protect public education. Sorry, Mike doesn't cut it. Next story. Here we go again. Another story about cash from a charter industry executive. This was a tweet from Lenny Hampson who is sharing a link from the New York Daily News. And it turns out that the de Blasio campaign is under investigation again for receiving an apparently illegal loan from a PAC called Fairness PAC. Now, this was not in the actual article because I read the article, but uh, Leonie Hampson uh, has found out separately that the treasurer of the PAC is Richard Burry, uh, B-U-E-R-Y. I think I'm saying it right. Richard Burry. Who is he? He used to work for uh, Mayor de Blasio. He was a deputy mayor. Uh, he was the guy that was credited with implementing the pre-K program, which is considered a success. Not to everybody, but generally considered a success. Um, there were some bumps along the road. We won't get into that. <laughs> but Richard Burry uh, quit his job as deputy mayor for New York City, and he became the senior lobbyist for KIPP Charter Schools, K-I-P-P. -P. Knowledge is power or something like that. 
Um, he's the senior lobbyist for Kip, and at the same time, he's also treasurer for this federal PAC called Fairness PAC. Now, this PAC gave some money to the de Blasio campaign, and we know that the de Blasio campaign just called it quits like last week. And so he's still getting money. He probably has a lot of uh, debt, you know, a lot of expenses, people to pay off. Um, and, and it's also possible that um, de Blasio is going to be using his campaign money to give to other candidates, right? He might support another candidate for president, or he might support down-ballot candidates, such as city council candidates or congressional candidates or what have you. Mayor de Blasio received more than $50,000 from the Fairness Pack, and that is above the limit. Uh, I believe the the limit for a federal PAC is, um, uh, don't quote me on this, but $2,700. So he's taking more than 20 times the amount, if that's correct. He's taking way, way, way more over the... He took over $50,000, folks. So uh, he is in hot water. We're going to see what happens with that. I don't know why Mayor de Blasio keeps doing this. This isn't the first time he needs to clean up his act with this money and these PACs just... Why don't you just fundraise from regular everyday people like Bernie Sanders, right? And like all these other great candidates that are doing it now. Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, you know, they're all saying we're not taking money from corporate PACs. Why can't you? So that was September 22nd. So, yeah, the, the other uh, tweet was, where are they on K-12? Seeing no other candidates taking strong positions for public education... Randy Weingarten, Diane Ravitch, Jonathan Kozel, and 100 other education leaders came out in support of Bernie Sanders' K-12 plan. Of course, Bernie Sanders' plan, we've spoken about many times, his K-12 plan means grade school all the way up through high school, and Bernie's plan is to end all funding for charter schools on the federal level, to end standardized testing, to triple Title I funding for impoverished schools, and on and on, many, many things. It's called the Thurgood Marshall Plan. So Randy Weingarten, who's the head of the AFT, the Teachers Union, Diane Ravitch, who is the leader of the uh, opt-out movement, education, anti-education reform movement, uh, Jonathan Kozel, who is an advocate for underprivileged youth in public education, all these guys signed this letter saying that Bernie Sanders' plan is great. Because of that, an article came out in Jacobin, and the article uh, actually had the title to the effect of Teachers Have to Vote for Bernie Sanders. If you don't, like, something's wrong with you. Here, it's called uh, uh, Why America's Teachers Unions Must Endorse Bernie Sanders. Okay, and this was written by Kenzo Shibata. We're going to go over this a little bit because there was a backlash online. Uh, there was a backlash from a reporter, somebody that writes for the American Prospect and somebody that has also written for Jacobin, who had a reaction, and Randy Weingarten reacted on Twitter too. So what is this case that Kenzo Shibata of Jacobin is making? Reading. No other presidential candidate has anywhere near as strong a platform as pub on public education as Bernie Sanders. That's why America's teachers should endorse him, America's teachers union should endorse him for president. I'm reading from Kenzo Shibata. In my nearly two decades as a teacher, I have not seen a more comprehensive and forward-thinking plan as Senator Bernie Sanders' K-12 education plan. That plan, along with Sanders' unwavering support for teachers' unions and the labor movement more broadly throughout his political career, make the choice for a presidential endorsement clear. America's teachers' unions must endorse Bernie Sanders for president. His education plan reads both as a promise to our young people that they shall have equitable access to high-quality resources in the classroom 
and as a rep repudiation of two decades of failed education reforms, all right? And I'm just going to throw in that that means standardized testing in charter schools, common core, stuff like that. Reading, the most prominent example is Sanders' inclusion of a moratorium on new charter schools as advocated by the NAACP. Diane Ravitch, a former proponent of the publicly funded, privately managed schools, now refers to them as a colossal mistake. Charters have been shown to resegregate school districts and to offer no better outcomes than neighborhood public schools. Sanders plans to triple Title I funding. By the way, Biden adopted that same plan nine days later. Uh, providing more resources to cash-strapped schools that serve our poor students. This is a reversal of the failed No Child Left Behind Act, which decreased funding to the schools that needed it the most, and a strong repudiation of the corporate education reform pushed by both Republicans and Democrats since the 1990s. Okay, think the Clinton-Gingrich uh, era. Sanders has also proposed a universal school lunch program, which will end the shaming of students who cannot afford to pay their lunch bills. Sanders' plan would not only undo decades of damage from the school reform movement, but would also expand and strengthen education for the masses more generally. His campaign will force conversations about school segregation, privatization, and the school-to-prison pipeline. Along with the school reform movement, became association with the school reform movement became a bona fide for both Democrats and Republicans since the early 2000s. The model for politicians is to make public statements about how the status quo has failed our children and how we need a new paradigm to improve outcomes. Groups like Democrats for Education De Reform, which I call DEFER, provided talking points and policies for these politicians to push to their communities. Entire districts were overhauled to make space for charter schools, merit pay schemes, and data-driven education systems that attack teachers. Sanders sharply breaks from this paradigm. Out of all the candidates, Sanders is the one whose platform will most improve the lives of educators and the students we serve. Our students and their parents need Medicare for all, not to mention that a free, high-quality public health plan would allow educators to focus our contract demands on higher pay and better classroom resources instead of consistently fighting to keep up with rising health care costs. Sanders' education plan digs deeper than his overall platform and gets to the core of what's wrong with education reform. He starts with the belly of the beast, charter schools, which once held the promise of teaching the most underserved students in urban districts in personalized and creative ways that best serve their needs, have become patron of troughs for union busting and resegregating schools. These schools promise to change education for working class students, yet they have shown no improvement over neighborhood public schools and in many cases do worse. Elizabeth Warren has said that she will nominate a public school teacher be, to be her Secretary of Education, but she chose former Teach for America Corps member Joshua Delaney to head her education policy. Delaney only completed one year in the classroom before switching to education reform endeavors. We know that in the reform arena, TFA supports charter schools, merit pay, and weakening teachers' unions. New Jersey Senator Cory Booker's education record is much worse. The charter school movement helped him move from mayor to New York from mayor of Newark to senator to major presidential candidate. I wouldn't say major, sorry. Booker was not only the poster child for Democrats for education reform because of his years of support for education privatization, but he also sat on the board of the Alliance for School Choice with Trump-appointed Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos, where the two extolled the virtues of private school vouchers. These high-profile seats propelled Booker's career. This is a sharp contrast to Sanders, who built political power, not through neoliberal benefactors, but through grassroots. Sanders named his education proposal after Thurgood Marshall. 
the young attorney who worked to desegregate schools. Sanders' plan will continue the promise of integrated schools by pushing districts to hire more teachers of colors and end the mass suspension of blacks as students, which contribute directly which contribute directly to the school-to-prison pipeline. His plan includes appointing monitors in districts to assure that Civil Rights Act's provisions are enforced in schools. His plan includes the NAACP's recent call for a moratorium on new charter schools. He has proposed accountability for unaccountable charter schools, requiring charter boards to include parents and educators, not just people appointed by charter directors. Charter schools are motivated by dismantling public education and the potential accumulation of profit. Sanders will require charters to match the standards set by educator employment contracts, ending the practice of using charters as an end run around teachers' unions to undercut them. He is also proposing equitable funding, strengthening of the protections for students with special needs, and making schools safe for all. He is a proponent of community schools. These are schools that act as hubs of the community, open before school starts and ending after the final dismissal bell. Students get three meals a day and snacks, and parents can take courses at night. Sanders has also pledged, uh, by the way, these also include clinics often too. Sanders has also pledged to expand after school and summer programs. Keeping students and their families in their neighborhood public schools creates communities that are empowered and increases their capacity to organize, to create schools that truly address community needs. None of the other candidates for the Democratic nomination have a plan as comprehensive or progressive as Sanders's. It is a plan that shows not only has he been paying attention to the failures of education reform movement, but also that he has a vision for what public education should be. Win or lose, Sanders' campaigning on this plan will educate the public on the ills of corporate education reform. All of this would have seemed impossible years ago for politicians to clamor for Medicare for All or cancel student debt and would have seemed unlikely for a major Democratic candidate to reject the corporate education reform model in favor of a defense and rebuilding of public education. For some of today's candidates, that still seems impossible. Sanders will take these politicians to school and our students will be better off for it. For America's teacher unions, it's clear that no other candidate comes as close to being as strong for public education and public school teachers. That's why our unions must endorse Sanders for president. Now, this has had an interesting reaction on Twitter, and I promised I would tell you what Randy Weingarten said, okay? But first, we're going to talk about Rachel Cohen, okay? She is a writer. She has written for, well, let's see what her bio says. She has written for Jacobin herself. She also writes for The American Prospect and The Intercept. Okay, and she writes that she has a few thoughts about this piece that I just read. Coming as someone who has covered charter schools and ed reform for the last five years, she writes in a series of tweets, I think it's fair to think Bernie would oppose the education reform movement as president more than Elizabeth Warren. However, he never really lobbed any criticisms at it until spring 2017. Okay, that's not true, Rachel Cohen. And so I'm going to read uh, our rebuttal from the New York Bats. From Rachel Cohen's Twitter feed, Bernie has truly supported some things throughout his career for a long time, like single payer. But this has led to a mistake where people then treat everything he's supporting in the year 2019 as something he's also advocated for for a long time or has never flipped on. Okay, that might be true. Reading, I covered Bernie's education plan in 2015, his education platform. It was basically just about college. 
He's voted for expanding charters in 1998 and then stayed out of the debate for the next two decades. He also didn't talk about big money in education. Now, that's not fair because Bernie Sanders has spoken about big money in everything, right? He's been wanting to get big money out of politics, period, and that includes education. You cannot carve that out. Sorry, Rachel Cohen. I like her writing, by the way, but uh, I disagree on this. And then Rachel Cohen attaches an article that she wrote in 2015 about uh, Bernie's platform. Now, I was also covering Bernie Sanders in 2015, and I was also writing articles, and I was also uh, watching very closely. So we wrote a tweet to Rachel Cohen that says, don't forget, your 2015 article acknowledged Bernie's platform call to to end standardized testing, one of the major pillars of ed reform. Warren echoed the call this July to the cheers of teachers because the testing fuels the privatization of public schools. Not worth mention, question mark? We asked Rachel Cohen. So it seems as though Rachel Cohen is trying to backpedal from the sentiment of this Jacobin article, which is clearly an opinion piece, that the teachers union should support Bernie. Now, let's go to Randy Weingarten's uh, reaction because she had a reaction too. Her Twitter feed is R. Weingarten for anybody interested in following her as the head of the teachers union. She's saying that Bernie's plan is good and she did sign a letter that is in support of Bernie's plan. However, she is still trying to stay open to other candidates. In other words... She signed that letter because she's hoping that other candidates that she likes better than Bernie will adopt just as good of a policy on public education and labor. So how awkward is it for Randy Weingarten to be the president of the labor union for the teachers and to you know have to admit that Bernie has the better plan, but that she still doesn't support him? She is angling I mean, you know, we could talk about the AFT proposal for the endorsement process because I'm a teacher and I'm supposed to be, you know, part of this conversation. All teachers are supposed to be part of this conversation. But they're putting in place a process where the executive committee gets to make the final decision. And so, you know, she's just hanging it out there right now that, yes, we like Bernie's plan. And, you know, she's honestly saying that he has the best plan. But the, uh, oh boy, oh they're putting some mean stuff up about, about Randy Weingarten. I don't want to read this stuff because I don't want to get off. Oh, here we go. So Randy Weingarten, she writes on September 23rd, which is yesterday, that Rachel Cohen takes a good look at the Jacobin piece that tries to tell our members they must support Bernie. Bernie Sanders' ed plan is great, but many of the Dems have really moved in the direction of strengthening public ed. Personally, I am waiting to see all the candidates' plans. And then there's a link to Rachel Cohen's thread, which I just read you all the tweets to. All right. Uh, she has 173 responses. And let's see. Right. And so this is where they're saying, Randy, you have a candidate with 40 years of being union strong in word and deed, a candidate that has a comprehensive K-12 plan that addresses systemic issues to protect and strengthen public education. And you're going to trust some Johnny come lately who suddenly jumps on board. That was from an account called Trekker Teach. So obviously she's in the Bernie camp. Katie Osgood, who I believe is a Chicago union member. Uh, I'm an AFT member. None of the other candidates 
plans come close to Bernie. He's far and away the best candidate for working people everywhere. Susan Dufresne, Randy, we all know you're stuck in the 90s with centrist neoliberal candidates. It isn't about you, though. You get the same freedom to vote in the voting booth I do. But you're a union president. You need to listen to members, not just a few this time either. All members, period. This is Anthony Cody, who is part of the network of public education. Many of us are waiting for a clear plan on K-12 ed from E. Warren, from Elizabeth Warren, that would make her make clear her stand on high-stakes tests, TFA, and charters. Why the delay on this critical issue? Cassia Mosdell, this isn't a biased comment at all. Teachers are Bernie's number one donors. I remember him talking about childcare workers and teachers in ways I had never heard before. Back in the 80s, roll the tapes. Rebecca Gorelli, what in the actual? Seriously? Give your members a voice. Act like a union. And geez, other Dems are moving in that direction. But Bernie Sanders has been there all along. Give your members the voice they deserve. Okay, thread here on some big charter backers. Oh, so this is uh, somebody replying to the author who don't seem concerned enough over the prospects of Warren's not-yet-released K-12 plan to stop donating to her campaign. Okay, so they're trying to say that there are a handful of the leading anti-cap funders for some reason saw fit to donate to Elizabeth Warren's campaign, along with Stefan Roach, the president of Walton Enterprises. That's weird. I'm going to uh, bookmark that and look at it later. Okay. Uh, from an account called Twitter is censoring leftists. No, you're not. You're waiting to see how much shit you'll get. Sorry. If you if you go against teachers, you're supposed to be representing. The very people who have donated to Sanders' campaign more than any other. We're watching you. From Tanya Singh, ones who supported charter schools should be eliminated from consideration. Okay, Maggie Day says their right-wing extremist campaign will bully you to death. Their outlets will as well. Jordan Martins writes, Bernie voted to expand charters in the 90s, so let's maybe emphasize current positions and evolution as being factors to consider. Fair enough. I will Google this, but if you have the info handy, can you post it? It's in the thread. Oh, this is Rachel Cullen answering with her blue check mark. And then here is a, an account called OMG Dear. The insurance premium is here. Here she was last year using the nonprofit charter sector's face nomenclature public charters. We'll see where she is now. And there's a video of Elizabeth Warren. Here, an account called Some Hands Off Venezuela Dude. You're actively agitating against your members, making at least 60K a year and having solid health care no matter where you work. An account named SMH. Any objective analysis shows Bernie is the only top candidate that hasn't been holding water for charters and the privatization ed reform interests. Also, Randy, guess who are the top contributors to Sanders' campaign? Teachers. Here's an account called Gay Waiter Paul 2020. Plans don't equal trust. The question we must all be asking is, who do you trust or to trust? Bernie 2020. An account called Come to the Edge, Bernie Residue. Warren certainly won't fight for them. She won't have a movement behind her, so she won't have the ability to galvanize the public. Without that, the GOP and most Dems won't do anything. DOA more or less. An account called Shizrock writes, really? And then he quotes Randy's, Randy's statement, tries to tell our members they most support Bernie, end quote. We get it. You don't like the guy, not for his policies, but for vapid insider reasons. How about take a vote for the endorsement instead of backing someone politically expedient for your own power advantage? An account named Kyle Ernie. So you're waiting to see plans from people who haven't made it a priority. That's a good one. I'm hearting that. 
Dinah Polnitz writes, Randy, you've been a celebrity teach union teacher for too long. Celebrity teacher union for too long. It's time for the members to have their choice. Great Plains Progressive writes, trust our teachers. So clearly they're being ratioed here. This is Randy Weingarten and Rachel Cohen. Jay LeFevre, if you turn your back on a candidate with 40 years impeccable pro-union credentials, you would destroy the AFT and tell other politicians that loyalty is not rewarded. For all, yelling appreciator is in support. Bernie is the only candidate. Single payer or bust. Nice ratio there, buddy. <laughs> M. Podol. Planning to pull a working families? We know they had at least 45,000 reasons to do what they just did. Just saying. Uh, what that tweet is referring to is last week, the Working Families Party endorsed Elizabeth Warren over Bernie Sanders, and they did not hold a straight-up vote of the the members or the supporters of the Working Family Parties. They held a weighted vote where half the vote is the membership of just everyday people, and the other half is the movers and shakers and the officials and the, of the Working Families Party. And you know, in other words, the higher up executives. They went in a close decision. They went for Elizabeth Warren, and some of the Bernie supporters are pissed off about it. You know, I'm a Bernie supporter, but I'm like, okay, eh. Alderman Carlos Ramirez Rosa says the author of the Jacobin piece is Kenzo Shibata, a rank-and-file Chicago Teachers Union member and longtime IFT-AFT militant. Bernie's the only one yelling for me, says, could this have something to do with it? It popped up in the thread today, making your statement a little less credible. And, of course, this is a WikiLeaks showing Randy Weingarten, oh boy, saying that she's going to go after the, uh, n the nurses' union in 2016 after they endorsed Bernie. They're bringing back all this old stuff from 2016, folks. Bernie Girl says Bernie is the OG with plans. JJ says Warren is planning on using standard fundraising models in the general. Bernie never supported charter schools. The others have. We know who has our back. I don't know. The uh, Rachel Cohen piece said that uh, Bernie supported charters in 1998. Shaved Wookie RN writes, which Democrat of the 20 is is competing against the nomination is a stronger advocate for public education and teachers. B writes, you made up your mind years ago, Randy. Admit it. Uh, this is Jay LaFaber again. Uh, Kambiz Lavasani, who has their own uh, blue check, writes, are you seriously quoting David Brooks at us? He's an idiot and he's wrong. And he links a uh, David Brooks piece about Elizabeth Warren and vouchers. Susan D. Wisner writes, I am a retired NYC UFT teacher. I am voting for Bernie. Okay. Black Residue writes, remember that Randy Weingarten is a personal friend of Hillary. Peter writes, pay attention to what happened to the Working Families Party, Randy. Warren is a Trojan horse writes, very impressive to sell out teachers twice in two primary, primaries, Randy. You don't represent me. Dark Star Flashes is for Bernie. Gunnels has the damn receipts. All right, so over and over and over. This, uh, there's 170 replies. I'm going all to the bottom. It all looks like they really agree. The person that wrote the Jackman piece is in AFT. Charter schools are bad, Randy. All right, on and on it goes. So, really interesting. Twitter war. Randy Weingartner is trying to say she's waiting to hear the education plans of the other candidates. Well, they haven't released their plans. That shows it's not a priority. That was the best tweet of the day. And with that, we are going to end for today. We will be back on the air Tuesday at 7. 
We will be talking to Mondaire Jones, who was a candidate running against Neil Lowy. At some point, I think uh, he said that we're, we're going to sit down with him after September is over, so I guess next month. It's New York Update, please catch it's us online at nyupdate.org, and you can get our archives anytime on Twitter at UpdateNY. Peace.